the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant Tuesday to you. Great to have you on board this 11th day of June. Trust you're having a great, if albeit warm, week so far. More temperatures in the 90s, up to 100 again tomorrow. Ouch. I, You know, we said so long, we're tired of the rain. Well, I guess this is what you get in exchange for it, right? Well, to help um, cool you down, we're going to keep you company for the next couple of hours, wherever you might be headed, and lots to talk about. One of the topics that we'll dive into later on today, and I think will be of interest to anyone that deals with the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, and this is, runs the gambit of somebody who uh, was in a terrible car accident, maybe served in the military, whatever the case might be, there are a number of triggers that are out there, one of which might include the recent, again, news concerning mass shootings, uh, this time, of course, the one back east uh, that happened just a week ago. What do these events mean, and how do we go about addressing potential triggers for individuals that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. We're going to be joined by forensic psychologist Dr. Kathy Seifert. Dr. Seifert is the chairman of the Maryland Psychological Association's Committee on Public Mental Health and has been a frequent guest on Investigation Discovery, CNN, Fox News, et al. She'll join us later on in this hour and lots to get you into the 6 p.m. hour as well, along with a visit by constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus. We'll talk about the plight of a 86-year-old widow evicted from her home of 14 years in Southern California based entirely on her age. Somebody apparently didn't get the memo. We'll talk about that coming up later on tonight. Right now, though, let's talk about matters constitutional particularly as it relates to a number of stories that have been in the news of recent, as President Trump has invoked presidential emergency powers to deal with a number of issues that he feels ultimately are not getting the kind of attention at the congressional or legislative level as they ought to. Now, to put this in perspective, President Trump is not the first president to invoke presidential emergency powers in order to try to address an issue or get a job done. Um, While he has a total of five invocations of these powers to his name, um, Obama, over his uh, eight years in office, had a total of 13 occasions in which he invoked the presidential emergency powers. George Bush before him, 12. Bill Clinton, by the way, holds the record for a total of 17 times since Congress passed the National Emergencies Act in 1976 to invoke presidential emergency powers. But the question comes down down to a matter of why they're being invoked, but how they're being invoked 
and how appropriate are they from a constitutional standpoint? Fascinating bit of discussion here coming up as we're joined by constitutional expert, attorney Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, is the host of The Bob Zadek Show, nationally syndicated, broadcast here in the Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. <coughs> Pardon me, you can catch the program on our sister station, 860 a.m. KTRB, The Answer, Bay Area home to the Oakland A's. Bob, by the way, is also, in addition to his work as a radio talk show host, is a uh, prolific writer. He's got a new book out called, uh, oh, that's the wrong book. Ah, here it is, The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product. And Robert, as always, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, Craig. Always a pleasure. When we hear word that the president is invoking emergency powers, that would seem, I guess, to the uninitiated to suggest that the president has such powers in which to invoke. And and certainly a, a cursory reading of the National Emergencies Act of 1976 seems to suggest that the president does indeed have such powers. I indicated that a number of presidents have exercised those powers down through the years. But I'm curious, in reading the Constitution, and specifically Article 2, that um, enumerates the explicitly granted powers given to a president, I don't see such a thing as emergency powers. So where does this come from, and, and can this act passed by Congress actually confer such powers on the president? That's a great question, Craig. And by the way, you mentioned Bill Clinton as holding the record for the uh, most frequent exercise of emergency powers. It's funny you should mention that because there was an expression in Clinton White House which summarizes the ugliness of a presidential exercising power by declaring a national emergency. Uh, I'd like to quote from a phrase in the Clinton White House. It was, and I quote, stroke of the pen, law of the land, kind of cool. In other words, how cool it was for the Clinton administration, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, and now the Trump administration to discover stroke of the pen, law of the land, kind of cool. So first of all, we have our president today has more power as president than any king in the history of planet Earth. Think of that. In a democracy, our president has more powers vested in one human being than any king ever had. That's what our country has come to. Now, you ask exactly the right question. How did we get here? Well, if you do a word search of the 4,300 words in the Constitution, you will not find the word emergency. As you pointed out, Craig, it doesn't exist. Every single power that the president exercises comes from one source, Congress. And any powers the president has, if you feel the president has too much power, too much discretion, the fault is not the president. It was given to him by Congress. And I hope we will discuss during the show, because it is vitally important for our listeners and friends to understand it, why Congress was so generous in bestowing upon the president power that without doing so, that power resides in Congress. One would expect that each of the three branches of government jealously guard their own power. 
And the last thing they would do would be to cede that power to another branch of government. But Congress has done that in spades. And the reason, which I hope we will get into, is quite fascinating, if not scary and unpleasant. Certainly one would hope that whenever Congress acts to essentially um, shave off some of their own power and lend it to the president, you would think that that would be under very rare circumstances and would be wrought, <coughs> pardon me, wrought with all kinds of conditions. I mean, for example, in the case of, of executive orders, I understand that they are subject to judicial review and interpretation, but not subject to congressional review. And certainly there are certain powers, as we've suggested, that are explicitly granted to the president. Um, some powers are implied. Others are cases where there seems to be sort of soft power attached to the president that it's, it's, it's not explicit, but kind of implied. But here we're talking about specifically with the emergency powers um, having been granted to the president by the United States Congress. And you raise the question that I'm sure is on the mind of every listener right now, Robert, and that is is this. Why would Congress ever voluntarily turn over some of its powers to the president without at very least insisting that they have final say-so? The answer is a combination of profound cowardice, and I'll explain, plus a desire to maintain your position in the House or in the Senate. Why? Because it's a gosh darn good job. And who wants to lose it? It is, uh, talk about an entitlement. No one has as much entitlements as does senators and members of the House. It is the best job on the planet. Now, why do they delegate so much power to the executive and to the judiciary and to the administrative state, which is part of the executive? The reason is clear. Congress votes very broad legislation. The Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, welfare, they, they pass in flowing language uh, broad statutes. They say, these are the broad principles. Okay, President, you figure out how to carry it out. And we delegate to various cabinet members the authority, the secretary shall do this, the secretary may do that. We delegate to the executive branch the power and the authority to carry it out. Why? Because let's take at random the Endangered Species Act, a not well thought out statute. Congress gets credit. Hey, we saved a whole bunch of species. They get reelected for doing this great work. Well, when the Endangered Species Act is now put into effect by uh, various governmental agencies in the executive branch and they botch it up or people discover how bad the statute is, they don't yell at Congress. They yell at the executive branch. And Congress doesn't get any bad publicity. They say, we did a, look, we passed a beautiful statute. The executive messed it up. So Congress gets a free ride. They get reelected. They get their vanity stroked. They get to keep the job and the entitlements. And somebody else gets the heat, whether it's the Supreme Court, the lower courts, or the executive branch. It's simply crass job preservation, where they delegate to other branches of government, 
all of the dirty work so nobody yells at Congress. They yell at the executive. And giving the power, this broad executive power to the president means the president gets the heat. And we see people are complaining every day about Trump's exercise of executive power. He's behaving like a king. He's behaving like royalty. Well, you can't complain to the president. He was given the power. If you're given the power, Congress won't act. You say, well, I have the power. I'll do it. And the president gets the heat and Congress gets a free pass. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. It, it's, it's akin to suggesting, well, we've, we've made the keys to the Lamborghini available. We've placed them right there on the table. And yet we expect the president to not be at all tempted to go take it for a little spin around the block. Of course he will. Why not take advantage of it? And as we've, as we've delineated, uh, it has been taken advantage of dozens and dozens of times down through the years by multiple presidents since its passage in the 1970s. Jimmy Carter has only used it twice. Of course, he didn't have much time in which to use it. But you had Ronald Reagan used it six times. Um, Bush 41 used it four times. Clinton so far the winner in our contest with 17 occasions. Now, most of these times, um, they're sanctions against foreign states. There are some executive emergency powers that were instituted that remain in effect to this very day, sometimes administrations later. Some of the uh, emergency powers put into place by uh, Bill Clinton uh, over 20 years ago, yet today remain in place. But what of this notion of essentially Congress abrogating both its power and its responsibility and then conveniently using the president as sort of the fall guy when things don't go right, as has been suggested by Bob Zadek? Well, we'll talk more about that when we come back. And we'll also talk about potential judicial challenges to such powers. Bob Zadek is with us today. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, his most recent, The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product, newly available. You can get information about both the book as well as resources and podcasts from The Bob Zadek Show online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. We'll come back to more of our discussion. Constitutional expert Bob Zadek with us here on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. 518, we're a bit late. Let's get caught up on traffic rack quick here from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back with syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show. Again, you can catch his program Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. He is a broadcast regionally, but of course you can catch the program right here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m. KTRB. Again, that's Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. We are talking about the presidential emergency powers that technically are not specifically granted by the Constitution. And I guess that raises a very critical question. Beyond the benefit, as you suggested, Bob, of Congress being able to kind of slough off some of its responsibilities to the president, let him take all the heat, uh, while it might be it, while it might be granted by the Congress, is it really granted by the Constitution, meaning at the end of the day, 
Um, the National Emergencies Act granting additional power to the president, isn't this something that ought to be codified inside of the Constitution? And if so, there so, then approved by two-thirds of the states? Well, the Constitution, um, the constitutional pr- uh, issue involved is something called the non-delegation principle. That is a firmly entrenched principle of constitutional law that prohibits Congress from delegating the legislative function to anybody other than itself. So, and that gets tested a lot when Congress bestows broad powers upon administrative agencies, such as the SEC, such as the EPA. And how it, how it plays out is this, Craig. Congress passes broad legislation. It empowers the EPA, if it's in their jurisdiction, to administer that, which means pass regulations. Now, if their regulations are violated, many administrative agencies have their own judges called administrative law judges who are employees of the EPA. And the EPA has its own police force, to, if you know, you've read about this in the papers, to enforce their regulations, which means we have the EPA, which is part of the executive branch, carrying out legislative functions by passing regulations, that's legislation, and judicial powers by having their own judicial system to enforce it. Well, that's an improper delegation of authority from the legislature to the executive. Now, the courts have given the legislature, the Congress, broad powers. They've said, okay, it's up to Congress to fix it. And very rarely do the courts get involved in what is called the political question of whether or not Congress had the power to delegate. But so that's the constitutional issue. In Congress, empowering the president to carry on these unfettered by Congress activities to do what the president wishes, whether or not that is an impermissible delegation of legislative power from Congress to the president. Up to now, courts have been quite lenient because they don't want to interfere in disputes between two political branches, Congress and the president. But there's some suggestion that is likely to change. And the, what's wonderful about this, in a way, if those, those it, there are people out there who say Trump has gone too far. And people have said Obama went too far with the I have a pen and I have a phone. Well, when presidents start to overreach, the pressure starts to build among the voters for Congress to do something about it. So maybe the country has had enough being ruled by a king having the fake title as president. And maybe pressure will be on the Congress to fix it, although fixing it is hard. Because if Congress passes statutes that take back power from the executive, the president's going to veto it. And therefore, Congress has to have a veto-proof majority 
to override the veto, that becomes a real challenge. And that's the political quandary the country is in. It almost seems as if there was some very short-sighted thinking back in 1976 when this was passed. Now, of course, we're at a time, too, when there's much turmoil going on. We're, we're not long on the heels of the entire Watergate scandal. It, it's almost a surprise to see the timing of this, that, that Congress, following what had happened in the Nixon administration, would even be considered uh, open to the notion of entertaining this idea of granting additional powers to the president. Certainly the benefit, as you pointed out in the previous segment, Bob, is the fact that now they can say, well, the president did it, we had nothing to do with it, we're, we're scot-free. Uh, and, and, and we've heard plenty of criticism of President Trump calling upon emergency powers to build the wall, impose tariffs, uh, deal with immigration, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a big hue and cry. He can't do it. How can he possibly do this? And yet I have to wonder if at the end of the day, uh, simply through ignorance, Americans might be inclined to put more of the blame at the feet of the president instead of where it really belongs, and that is Congress. And as you point out, how does Congress take back what they've granted if the president has the power of the veto and they've got to come back with a two-thirds vote in order to override? The hope has to be with the courts, uh, because the courts have the power to change their judicial philosophy and be more uh, and strictly construe the non-delegation principle and find in the right case, you know, uh, if you have the right facts, you'll get the right result, to find in the right case that this grant of, of executive power to the president is is a violation of non-delegation, and we, the courts, find it to be unconstitutional. That will get Congress off the hook, and that will undo the grant of presidential power. But that's a lot to wish for, uh, for the courts to do that, because as I said in the prior segment, courts are unwilling to involve themselves in what is considered to be purely political questions, Courts want the president and the, and the Congress to work that out between them. Now, the irony is, though, when it comes to executive orders, not to be confused with presidential emergency powers, but when it comes to executive orders, uh, isn't there a specific granting of judicial review um, given in that case? Yes, because executive orders uh, do not exist there's no such thing in the Constitution for executive orders that is purely a creature of custom that evolved over time. And executive orders are a byproduct of a statute uh, which Congress passes. And as you know, the president has one of the very few duties the president has. He must see that the laws of the land and the Constitution are faithfully carried out. And the president exercises executive power as part of carrying on that function. So that's the political cover the president has. He's carrying, seeing to it that the laws are faithfully executed. Congress can, by drafting better statutes, can limit the president's use of executive power. Uh, and that it's once again, it vests with Congress. But Congress, because they so much value the job, they value the entitlements, they value the status they get because they're guests on the evening news. And their status, the status that members of the House and Senate have, 
is kind of bizarre. First of all, um, the public holds Congress in the lowest esteem of any profession in America. Only 13% of the American public respects the job that Congress is doing. You can't get any lower than 13%. And, but notwithstanding that, it's a good, good gosh darn job. And Congress wants to keep it. And they have no interest. People go into Congress not to legislate. They go into Congress to get a very good job and as a stepping stone to a, a better career in politics. So the selfishness, the vanity that so many members of Congress demonstrate in trying to get there and in fighting to stay there, that's what creates the mess we're in. It's the humanness and the ordinariness of Congress that got us in the pickle we're in now. Oh, and that's going to open up a conversation you and I need to have one of these days. I don't think we've had it yet, but we need to do so on the topic of term limits for just that very reason. Bob Zadak, host of The Bob Zadak Show, again broadcast live Every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., we invite you to check it out. Tune in. Bob has some extraordinarily intelligent guests. Uh, if you get frustrated with a lot of the talking bobblehead uh, shows on Sunday mornings and really want some intelligent talk where you can walk away with a sense of deeper understanding, uh, then his program is one that you got to earmark. Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, 8.60 a.m., KTRB. You can also get information on the web about Bob's latest book, The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's most overrated product, along with other resources and podcasts of past shows at bobzadek.com. That's Bob Zadek, spelled B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. Robert, always a delight and an education. We'll look forward to our next visit. 5.32, the clock tells me. Let's see what traffic tells me, other than it being another crazy day on the ride home. Here's the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We typically hear the response on the heels of a tragic shooting, um, aside from comments from one side saying we need more gun control, the other side saying the victims are in our thoughts and prayers and nothing ever changes. We also typically hear things such as uh, people that were close to the perpetrator say, well, gee, he or she seems so nice or quiet or a friendly person, or they never saw it coming. Is that always necessarily the case, though? In fact, do we not see these things coming because we're ignorant or just not taking the time to look? Joining me now, we talk about the issue of the latest shooting in Virginia Beach and, and why these shooting sprees take place is Dr. Kathy Seifert. She is forensic psychologist and violence expert, creator of the CARE-2 Child and Adolescent Risk Evaluation Screening Tool, one of the most accurate predictors of future violence in children. She has her Ph.D. from the University of Maryland, currently sits as chair of the Maryland Psychological Association Committee on Mental and Public Health, and has been a guest expert on a number of networks, including Discovery, CNN, Fox News Channel, and Dr. Siegfried, thanks so much for being with us today. 
Oh, absolutely. I am very happy to be part of this discussion. It's an important one, and, and it's a dialogue that we seem every so many months to be having over and over and over again, and, and sadly, much of the um, much of the discussion seems to be repeated. We didn't know. We didn't see it coming. We had no idea it was going to head in that direction, and how sorry we are that it's happened, and it's almost as if you could change the set of, of, of victims and location and circumstances and insert rest of the data here, and it seems to almost be a, a, a copy. It help us first understand, based on your arena of expertise, what is it that takes somebody to the point of, of frustration or or anger, where they go from thinking bad thoughts to punching a wall to now plotting, taking out a gun, and acting out in very violent ways, ultimately claiming other lives? Well, what drives an individual to that? And so, uh, you really touched on it in the beginning. And so what we need is more education about what risk factors to look for. The majority of the folks who end up being school shooters or workplace shooters have risk factors, red flags, that have been showing up since they were children. And we need to be able to recognize that. So just let me give you an example. The research tells us that by the age of five, children should not be using aggression to get their needs met. And so even though that seems young, you see somebody who's still fighting and punching and doing things like that in elementary and middle school and high school, that's a kid who may be in trouble. And so we can see it coming. It's just honing in on those specific risk factors that have to do with specifically with violence. And they're not the same as our risk factors for mental illness. What strikes me is, and you mentioned about the the onset of this influence at a very early age, and yet ironically, culturally in America today, uh, so much of our entertainment, so much of the way we not only uh, fill our, our free time, but, but even show lessons to children as to how disputes are resolved is through violence, whether we're talking about violence on the scale of, of war or violence in uh, television and in film or even video video games. And the one thing I guess that from from a novice's perspective at this, Dr. Seifert, is I have to wonder, why does there seem to be a disconnect in our society today between all of the messages that, that underscore violence as a solution to problems, and then when people actually do it in real life, we're shocked at Absolutely. And again, you're right on target. So I'm going to say something that... Uh, it, people may not want to hear, which is the United States is one of the most violent countries of the industrialized nations. And so we have a culture of violence in our media, of violence in our movies, violence in our video games. And to an extent, it normalizes the idea that we use violence to solve our problems. The reality is If you look at people who are raised in violent homes and are traumatized by violence in their early childhood and adolescence, these are the folks that are vulnerable to the message that it's okay to use violence 
to solve your problems. Most people, when they get frustrated, do not take their guns to school or to the workplace. They find other ways. And these are people who have the ability to solve problems by talking instead of with their fist or with their gun. And so, yes, we have lots of violence out there, but the ones that are susceptible are the ones that are actually experiencing it very often in the home. So it's a normal thing for them. It's a pattern, then. It's a pattern as much as we might see spousal abuse as a pattern. If you experience it as a child, watching dad beat up on mom or vice versa, there's likely an increased risk for that pattern to follow once you become an adult. So is this the same idea here that essentially we're training our children and, and they just they see what they what you know what they're exposed to, they memorize it, they they somehow in their their uh, deep psyche connect this with a means of working out problems and issues and then later on in life they repeat? Sure, absolutely. So as children, we're looking to our parents and our caregivers as our role model for what it is to be an adult. And if we see adults using violence, uh, maybe it's not in the school, maybe it's not in the workplace, but there's violence in the home. It, it becomes our pattern that we thought children look to our parents, their parents to see how they should behave. And that's a real normal thing. So if we see it often enough, and the other piece of it is being traumatized by it so that the skills that you need to solve your problems in other ways are it's almost like they're delayed in development uh your verbal problem solving skills are not necessarily as finely honed as they need to be to avoid a fight to solve a problem Wow. That means we've got an awful lot of work to do. And and this would seem to be at multiple layers. I mean, I, I get the impression that while this is, as you're suggesting, Dr. Siegfried, a, a issue inside of the home, but it's a, it's a broader societal issue, too, is it not? Yes. Yes, it is. And it's violence in the home and the media, and it's violence in our communities that children experience in particular communities. And it's um, violence in different parts of our culture that people get exposed to. And we do sometimes get accustomed to that, and, and it becomes a way of life. And we have to do something about that in this country and other places. But we do have a serious issue with it in this country. And as you point out, we become so accustomed to this that we get desensitized to it. I mean, I'll readily admit, films that I may see today that don't disturb me at all, 20, 30, 40 years ago, I would have thought twice about. Uh, And I think that's a product of a sense of growing older and becoming so accustomed to the violence and all that's around us that after a while, uh, it's just not as shocking anymore. I mean, we, we just recently passed the 20th anniversary of Columbine that set the entire country on its heels for weeks on end. We talked about Klebold and Harris. 
Now, these events, they come and they go, and with a matter of days, it's fallen out of the headline news, and unless we were directly impacted by it, we've forgotten about it, and we wait till the next event. Let me ask you a final question, uh, Dr. Figsford. What do we need to do to get this dialogue sustained that we can actually have a, a reasonable sit-down, so to speak, and, and, and begin to try to work through this? Or are we just stuck on this cycle that it's an act of violence, we throw our hands up in the air, we go tisk-tisk, and a day or two later we're back to life as usual? How do we stop that cycle? And so I think exactly what you're doing right now is what we need to do. We need to have people like journalists, people on the radio and TV who continue couple of weeks after a really bad event, continue to bring up the topic and generate the dialogue among people who actually may find the solution to prevent it from happening. Um, and so what you're doing is part of the solution, but you need to keep bringing it up. And I know we have a news cycle uh, that you kind of have to follow, but I think we can continue to bring it up and discuss it and have people like me on your shows that can help educate folks about how and why it happens. Dr. Kathy Seinfurt, forensic psychologist, violence expert. We appreciate so much the time and the insights, and we do need to keep this dialogue going. And I know that's painful as Americans to hash these things through our minds and, well, I want to think about more positive things, and yet our failure to keep the dialogue going means that we're going to continue to see these cycles repeat and repeat and repeat until such time as we grow weary enough to do something about it. My question is, how many shootings is too many shootings? Are we there yet? 550 on the clock. Get a look at traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As I mentioned, we've recently crossed the 20th anniversary of Columbine, and this this tragedy, of course, brings up different feelings for for different places, but indicative of the notion that these types of events, for people that have been through some sort of a traumatic experience, any sort, these kinds of events can serve as triggers. For example, we've long heard stories about men that have served um, in the military, whatever the theater of war might be, who, who return after a time and suddenly, anytime they hear a loud noise, maybe a truck backfiring on the street, and they suddenly jump because to them, to their deep-rooted memory, that sounds like gunfire. And even though you or I can differentiate and not be bothered by that, for a person suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, that's not the case at all. Um, Small events, seemingly small events, can trigger some pretty big feelings. With some more insights, we're joined now by Dr. Lori Nadell, specialist in acute stress, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Nadell is author of The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength When Disaster Strikes. And uh, we appreciate so much 
Dr. Nadell, you taking time to be with us today. Help us understand what's going on here. I mentioned about the fact that sometimes there can be seemingly a small trigger that brings about or, or recalls big feelings, a big reaction. What exactly is going on psychologically or emotionally for that person at that time? I think um, that's a really great question, and thank you so much for uh, having me on the show, Craig. Uh, we think of post-traumatic stress disorder, we, we, we talk about it when we refer to something upsetting, but trauma is not a bad hair day. Trauma is when we uh, we either escape uh, a life-and-death situation, or we witness it, or someone we know um, we lose somebody because of a sudden violent event and uh, we can actually be traumatized and get PTSD from hours of watching uh, images on our devices. So what happens is the um, the memory or the, the image, or the, 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 the visual uh, memory of what happened gets stored in the brain as a molecule or a group of molecules and that's true for all emotions. So when you think of Thanksgiving, when you smell uh, turkey roasting in somebody's kitchen, it might be a nice, warm, sunny day, You're, those chemicals may reactivate the feeling of being eight years old and you know standing in your grandmother's kitchen. So the, the molecules of, of trauma, of course, are not pleasurable. Uh, they tend to flood the body into a state of uh, hypervigilance where you're easily startled or you, you actually feel as though you're living through this horrifying event that you are helpless to prevent. Now, I'm curious, psychologically, uh, Doctor, is part of this the, the, the body's way, the brain's way to help protect us? For example, uh, let's talk about that same uh, five- or eight-year-old child, again, in Grandma's kitchen, who, um, um, without thinking, goes and reaches for a pot on the stove and, and burns his or her hand badly on the stove. Uh, clearly, that experience is going to now be registered in their mind, and they will be extra cautious around a stove moving forward. It is the ability to, to sort of encapsulate that negative experience to warn us of, of future danger. Is that essentially what's going on here in the brain? Um, it, something similar. It, it doesn't happen really as a warning. Um, it happens kind of more as a reminder uh, of what could happen, but it doesn't necessarily happen in um, in a kind of situational context. For example, uh, when we first started reporting on PTSD, when I, I worked in TV news uh, for the first 20 years of my career, we would hear about Vietnam veterans kind of crouched behind uh, a supermarket uh, shelf because somebody dropped uh, some soup cans on the floor, and the sound triggered all of those molecules of uh, threat and feeling that you're in danger, and uh, so the the um, you know, the, the veteran then would immediately, his body would go into a protective position or an aggressive position, uh, and when in fact there was actually no danger. So that's the, the, the difference. It, 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 I think it's the brain's way uh, of trying to kind of what we call it metabolize, to try to digest something 
uh, that we were har- we were horrified by and we were helpless to prevent and and never really okay. processed. I mean, I would suppose that's sort of the 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 end of that sentence. And and forgive me for doctor for for jumping in that way, but I, I I get the sense that on the heels of a traumatic experience, if there's not the appropriate time to think through and to process and to essentially sort of put it into perspective, uh, you you can sort of kind of capture in your mind that moment and that stays with you. Uh, I, I guess until you 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 fully confront it, if you ever do so. Well, you know, you can. A lot of people, um, you know, they may have nightmares. They may feel um, agitated. Uh, they may feel nauseous and be dizzy, unable to concentrate. Um, have a feeling that uh, they're going to jump out of their skin because really that's the feeling with anxiety disorders is the feeling is that your your nervous system is hot wired and you're going to drop out of your, you're going to jump out of your skin if somebody drops something or a door slams um, that startle response is just over the top so those things often resolve on their own but uh, for some people uh, it doesn't resolve a hundred percent. And in all of us, I mean, all of our emotions are stored as molecules. And sometimes, uh, in order to survive, we have to like put those molecules, if you will, of emotion in a drawer. And you slam the door shut so that you can make survival decisions, you know, while you're still slightly in shock. And then years later, when you're feeling safe and calm, some tiny thing, it can be the breeze, it can be a smell, it can be the sound of music, something can suddenly cause the drawer to just pop open and your brain says, aha, now you're ready to try to process this and metabolize this uh, to another level of resolution. It, it happens in layers. It seems then that you're suggesting that that for an individual, and this, you know, again, will vary from person to person. Not everybody processes the same. Uh, somebody can experience a car crash. They reason through it. Uh, they 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 wrestle with the emotions and they move on. Others uh, may not be readily able to do so, and therefore, just the slamming of, of the brakes on or hearing of a horn suddenly puts them, you know, sets them off. And so, is it suggestive of the notion that these types of traumas, whatever they be, need to be confronted, need to be faced fairly early on, as opposed to sometimes waiting years or decades? No, I'm, I'm part of a mental health movement called the uh, International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. And this is a movement that actually provides a kind of safe, structured uh, question and answer process that's very brief. And uh, we will be called in, a team will be called in to work with first responders after a particularly disturbing call. And one of the things that we explain is that it doesn't make you weak and it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you if you get upset. But it's very important that you talk about it right after the event and that you take care of yourself uh, very, you, you make sure that you don't isolate, you, you eat your meals with other people, you don't eat at your desk, because eating regular meals will give you more of a sense of control because you lose that sense of control when something horrifying happens, like a child dies right in front of you. So um, we have a lot to learn about self-care after these uh, horrifying events from the first responder community and culture. 
And I think it's important to know that right after an event like, like a hurricane or, or fires, for example, um, there's going to be a period of probably a few weeks to a month where you're going to be in a state of, of shock. And it's very, very important that you uh, apply emotional first aid, spend some time relaxing every day, even if it's five minutes, uh, journal about your reactions, do whatever you can to kind of get it out of your body as much as you can and uh, so that it, it will be processed in a, in, in a smoother way so that you're less likely to have delayed stress down the line in the form of PTSD. Dr. Lori Nadell, author of The Five Gifts, Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength When Disaster Strikes. Uh, even in our brief time together, uh, Dr. Nadell, I certainly appreciate the insights. I hope that our listeners have taken away uh, some important nuggets that they can apply to their own lives when dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Lori Nadell, information available on the web at laurinadell.com. All right, we're a bit late. We're going to get caught up here for you. We've got to look at some traffic, then we're going to come back and a visit with constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus as Lifeline continues. Right now, though, here's that look at traffic. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com. 